Hello and welcome to Stranger Than Fiction, a series of podcasts from Slate and the New America Foundation about the future as seen through the eyes of some of today's best science fiction writers. I'm your host, Tim Wu, and my guest today is Robert Sawyer, author of The Terminal Experiment, Flash Forward, and Triggers, among others. He joins us from Toronto. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks, Tim. Delighted to be here. So, in some of your... uh, previous uh, speaking, you've you've pointed out that science fiction often takes what you describe as a pessimistic tone, and you've talked about Frankenstein as an example of the uh, original pessimistic science fiction. That's true, absolutely. And in fact, um, it started out that way, very much as being cautionary tales, and, you know, if something could go wrong with technology, it would go wrong. And that continued right up into the 21st century. At its... um, most benign science fiction tends to follow William Gibson's dictum, which is that it should be profoundly ambivalent right. about changes in science and technology. And at its most malign, it takes Michael Crichton's point of view, which is that any advance in science and technology is doubtless going to turn around and bite us in the rear end. And, uh, you know, he made a very lucrative career out of that. In fact, I'll tell you a very brief anecdote, which is my agent, uh, he's passed away now, but my agent was Stephen King's agent, and I said, you know, Montreal Gazette calls me Canada's answer to Michael Crichton. How come I don't make as much money? And my agent said, look, if you want to say what Crichton says, which is that science and technology are evil and will ultimately be our downfall, I can get you those kinds of advances. But you, Rob Sawyer, you're a (laughs) science booster. You think that science and technology are our savior. And I happen to agree with you that that is true, but there is a much smaller audience that is receptive to that message than to the negative one. Well, you've sort of answered my, my, my next question in, in sort of crass terms, but I was going to ask you why you think that is. It's funny. You're interviewing me from the CBC studios in Toronto. Back in 1985, the CBC very kindly sent me to New York City to do a series of interviews with science fiction writers. I got to interview Isaac Asimov, and essentially I asked him that same question. He said, well, yes, it's more dramatic. Things going wrong is always more dramatic than things going right. Gene Roddenberry, when he reimagined Star Trek for Star Trek The Next Generation, in the first season had this notion that by the 24th century there would be no such thing as interpersonal conflict. We'd all get along just fine, and there would be a counselor, a uh, kind of uh, psychotherapist available to us all the time to keep us zen and mellow. And, of course, that was disastrous. The first season of Star Trek The Next Generation is painful unwatchable, uh, in large part because there's no drama, there's no conflict. So I fully understand why a storyteller wanting to make a buck, Michael Crichton being an example, would pander to the basis instincts of the more carnage, the better. It's much harder to be a utopian, positive science fiction writer. I am. uh, I think Kim Stanley Robinson is as well. But it's very hard to find, you know, enough to count on all the fingers of one hand who take a very positive view of the future. Do you go into your works uh, self-consciously thinking, I'm going to kind of try to write something upbeat, or is it just kind of naturally where you where you end up? Everything is layered that a writer, a good writer does. Everything is layered, multivariate. So on the one hand, I am by nature an upbeat person. I have seen in the 52 years that I've been alive now, the United States going from segregation to an African-American president, which, setting aside whatever one might think of any particular person's policies, uh, the fact of that is astonishing to me. 
I've seen us going from uh, being confined to this world to going to the moon in my lifetime. I've seen the human genome decoded in my lifetime. I've seen all kinds of diseases stamped out in my lifetime. And I see here that my own existence as a writer is made immeasurably better by word processing than it was back in the days when I had to do it by hand or on a, on a typewriter. So the whole milieu that I've grown up with has been one of clear-cut forward momentum for the world being a better place. And I think an honest extrapolator, and that's the job of science fiction, to extrapolate from what has been to what plausibly might be, should see no reason for that trend to abate. Now, that said, also, how does one carve out a niche, as you might call it in the United States, or a niche, as we might say up here in Toronto, for oneself in an already crowded marketplace? There are all kinds of guys who are kind of uh, Michael Crichton and then all of the poor person's Michael Crichton imitators out there. Did I want to go down that path, or did I want to find something that other people weren't doing? And when I looked around to write about the future of artificial intelligence, I found that almost every scenario was negative. So yeah, there was a part of me that said, hey, if you want to be noticed, do something that nobody else is doing, or hardly anybody else is doing, and uh, setting out to write a trilogy of novels about the World Wide Web gaining consciousness, in which it was non-zero sum, in which, uh, you know, every everybody wins in the end, uh, I thought was not just my natural inclination, but also, in fact, you know, crassly, uh, something that was more marketable than just another robots run amok story. Right. Well, uh, while we're on the subject of consciousness, uh, yes, no one uh, who reads your books can't uh, help but notice that uh, the subject of much of your writing is consciousness, how the brains function. Yes. Uh, you have in your books people cloning their brains, uh, encountering their futures somehow, accessing the brains of others, uh, things like the World Wide Web becoming conscious. What do you think consciousness is? Consciousness is an emergent property of sufficient complexity, and it has a survival value in that it allows you to override the Darwinian imperative. The Darwinian imperative says I should disadvantage you as much as possible so that my own offspring will be advantaged. That makes perfect sense in all of the natural nature and red and tooth and claw scenarios that existed up to the invention of weaponry. When weaponry started being invented, which is in terms of hand axes, which of course were originally tools co-opted for killing, uh, we reached a point in our development where it no longer made sense. If I hurt you, you might come back with 18 guys with spears and wipe out my, me and my entire progeny. I needed something that was going to override the Darwinian nasty imperative that said, I should take for me and my progeny and deprive you because we're talking about differential reproductive success. That's what evolution is. That's a pretty, uh, to my thinking, a somewhat narrow definition of, of consciousness. I mean, it suggests that you could imagine a criminal who just can't think ahead, you know, just acts by instinct in all cases, sort of a psychopath. Absolutely. And, and that and person would not the, be conscious in your We definition. use that defense in, uh, well, no, uh, consciousness is a survival trait at the species level. I Individually, see. there are aberrations. A lot of these criminals end up going to jail or not finding a mate and actually self-select out of the gene pool. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the standard definition in, or the standard defense, I should say, in a criminal case of a psychopath is, in fact, that the psychopath had no control over what he or she did. Consciousness is the higher level control function. I wanted to, to switch gears just, just a little bit. 
in the 1950s, 60s, uh, even somewhat through the 70s, science fiction was fundamentally about outer space. And uh, today, particularly your work, is more directed towards inner space. And I just wonder if you um, feel the future has sort of turned out differently than you thought back then, whether you thought we'd sort of be on the I have a moon base by oh, sure. now, and you know. Sure, and so on. I got yeah. it. I got into science fiction in the 1960s. The background was the Soviet American space race, which didn't look like. I mean, I, of course, I knew the goal was to go to the moon. I never thought that once we got there, we'd say, "Okay, that's it." You know, the last man to walk on the moon did so. 40 years ago this year, 1972. I mean, that's nonsense. Nobody has gone more than 500 miles from Earth in the last 40 years, and we call ourselves a spacefaring nation. So sure, in 1968, I was eight years old. My dad took me to see 2001, A Space Odyssey. That titular year was a promissory note. We're going to be out in the solar system. We're going to have permanently manned space stations. We're going to have colonies on the moon. We're going to be traveling to Jupiter. Of course, the future ended up differently than we thought it was going to be. That said, in 1982, which is 30 years ago, I wrote my first short story that featured what I called back then the TerraComp Web, the complete interconnection of computing systems across the entire planet. Way before that was a glimmer in Tim Berners-Lee's eye, I was writing about that. Uh, notion. Uh, and I, it became clear to me uh, decades ago that the information revolution, my first novel was about artificial intelligence, my most recent trilogy is about artificial intelligence and computing and the connected connectivity, which also featured in my first novel, very much clear to me that that was going to be the real direction. And unlike the cyberpunk movement, my thought had always been that it was going to be a largely positive direction. Right. Well, I mean, even in the topic you're talking about, since you began writing in the 90s, there have been uh, some developments, important developments in uh, science of the brain and, and some of the treatments of the brain. If you think of Prozac and all the other uh, uh, drugs that have come out where people have attempted to change their moods using chemistry. Um, but I guess I wonder whether those uh, those developments have actually been grounds for optimism or whether they've been uh, sort of disappointing in some ways. Oh, you know what? I used to have acid reflux disease. I take a pill. I don't anymore. I know lots of people who've got uh, high blood pressure and cholesterol. They take a pill and they don't have that anymore. Tons and tons of people, one of my best friends, lost his thyroid, takes a pill every day, is going to live a normal life because of that. To say that the brain is sacrosanct and that of all the parts of our body, we're not going to take advantage of our expertise in biochemistry uh, and in pharmaceuticals to tweak and to uh, tune and to enhance its performance seems to me a position grounded in Ludditism, not in science. In fact, I'll tell you, you know, I gave a, um, I was invited down to give a talk at the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience at Penn. And at dinner out with a bunch of the professors, every single one of them said, I'm on this or that cognitive enhancer. They all agreed. There was wow. no reason not to be on a cognitive enhancer. What they disagreed about, and, and it was vociferously with each other, was which was the right one to take. It's early days yet. But they all said, why wouldn't you? I mean, and, and remember, most of the adult North American population takes a cognitive enhancer every single day because they take caffeine. Uh, we have to be very, very uh, careful when we start saying, ooh, I would never play around with my brain chemistry and then haul back and have a slug of uh, Coke or coffee. And if you're having a Diet Coke, you're putting something that really messes with your brain chemistry, aspartame, into your system. We do it without thinking, why shouldn't we also be doing it with forethought and to accomplish a specific agenda? 
So you you uh, feel quite uh, optimistic about um, trying to to use certain chemicals. Obviously, I don't mean that pejoratively, but reagents or drugs to try to. I guess uh, I can understand cognitive enhancement, but what what else would you look think at? Look at my want? latest novel, which yeah. is Triggers, which yes. begins with the treatment of Iraq War Desert Storm veterans who are suffering from post traumatic stress disorder. Their lives are ruined because of a cognitive glitch in their brains. They cannot get past a horrific thing that was they were thrust into, and it is essentially debilitating their lives on a day to day basis. And the novel starts out with. Uh, a scientist, a, a Canadian a neuroscientist, is doing his damnedest to find a way to expunge those memories, to get that obsessive replaying loop, which is just a glitch in the brain, uh, a glitch caused by horrific experience, but a glitch nonetheless to no longer be a problem. And I think, uh, Tim, that that is a very admirable goal. And in fact, I would say it's mean-spirited to say to those who suffer from depression, which is debilitating, who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, which is debilitating, who suffer from dementia, which is debilitating, and who suffer from Alzheimer's, which is debilitating, oh, you know what? We shouldn't actually mess with the brain. That's an awful thing to say to them. So you would start with the uh, the major uh, disorders, the clearly identified disorders which inhibit function. Um, but would you go so far as to, uh, you know, I'm kind of in a bad mood. I don't know, had a bad day at work. Um, and you come home and you have a drink and you're kind of lagging in the afternoon. You come home and you have, or you have a cup of coffee at your break. What is the difference, Tim? Right. We already do it. In fact, that kind of cognitive modification and enhancement goes back to ancient times. You and I both know how old the fermentation of spirits is on this planet. Way before we had selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, we had beer. You've spoken uh, in, in previous work and some of your uh, work about uh, an interest that I've always had as well, which is the idea of copying the brain. Yes, as a, a means and of... And my uh, upcoming novel. I'm just finishing a new novel on that theme, too, called Red Planet Blues, for that matter. And, and which is the idea of essentially copying the brain, that is to say, somehow um, getting some kind of digitalized version of all the pathways. I'm sorry if I'm saying this incorrectly. And therefore, essentially being able to transfer your brain to, to a hard drive or a server. Um, and in that way, you uh, would uh, potentially achieve a certain kind of immortality in the sense that the brain has therefore uh, become separate from its uh, organic... A substrate. Now, I've often think that was an interesting idea, and I sometimes say to my friends, you know, one day uh, you won't be hearing from me, but I'll have a really great web page or something, <laughs> you know, and you'll hear Right, something. right. Uh, and they always say, my friends always say this would be a terrible thing. They they, you know, you would be miserable in there. You'd have, uh, you'd get bored. Well, and... first, there are two options here. One is consider the alternative. You're dead and gone for good, and there's nothing at all. Or there's a copy of you or arguably you continuing on some other substrate. The arguments that people make when they're hale and hearty are often different from the arguments they make when they feel their life is coming prematurely to an end. That said, of course, a number of people are quite content when their lives are done. They think a life well lived and they want to move on. Um, so, sure, uh, it's not going to be for everybody initially. Guess what? Not everybody had a... Um, I remember when I got my answering machine in 1982. And people said, oh, you know, I hang up. I don't leave a message. I don't like talking to a machine. I can't deal with that. Well, guess what, guys? It's 30 years on and everybody has voicemail. And in fact, if you refuse to use voicemail or texting or email and you say, oh, I don't do that computer thing, you're the funny character. Guess what? 
technologies emerge, there are early adopters, the early adopters normally survive, the trend spreads, and asking people now to say what their reaction is going to be to a technology that isn't even here yet, and assuming that's going to be the prevalent societal view when this technology is fully entrenched, is a kind of futurism that makes absolutely zero sense. Well, and so what you're saying fundamentally, I think, is that you think death... uh should be a choice. I mean, obviously, this is sort of premature to talk about, but your basic position is that death, I'll go with uh, that. Death yeah. is a choice. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm a huge believer in allowing people to die with dignity right now. We don't have any alternative, but it should still be a choice. If you want to end your life, the quality of your life is not what you want it to be, and nobody has coerced you to this choice. Uh, you should be able to, uh, with dignity, decide to check out rather than us doing what we do now, which is pull out the respirator and wait for our dearly beloved grandmother to asphyxiate. That's the way we say goodbye to our loved ones now. So yes, death should be a choice under all circumstances uh, with dignity. And to avoid death when the technology becomes available should likewise be a choice. Yeah, well, I have this bad feeling that all the people I like might die and then all the people I don't like might stick around. But <laughs> That is a difficulty to be concerned with. Uh, and, you know, uh, in terms of uploading, these two, you mentioned it originally, uploading, right? You could upload into a virtual world that's populated entirely by 5 million exact duplicates of Pamela Anderson, if that's your notion of heaven. That virtual reality uh, could be created and crafted individually for each uploaded mind. Instead of there being, and it's almost inconceivable theologically to imagine that there's one heaven that suits all, uh, the idea of an individualized continuing existence that's isolated from all those jerks that you don't want to have any further contact with would be a plausible option. But my my own choice, because I like being fully engaged with the 7 billion plus and growing of us, uh, would be to be continuing on in a more durable body than the one that I currently happen right. to have. Fair enough. My only thought was when I think about who really, really wants immortality, the first people come to mind are politicians and tyrants and, and creatures like that. But anyway, everybody, I, everybody who has had children and everybody who has written a book yeah, wants immortality. Yeah, that's true. Or everyone has a, a really well-developed uh, Twitter feed. Um, you have an enormous faith in the individual to make choices that make themselves happy. And, you know, I think a very respectable position. But have you ever had a situation yourself where, you know, you've had the choice uh, and actually it probably would have been better if someone else made the choices for you? Have you ever found uh, paternalism to be good in your life or do you just think it's... Um well, you know, legitimate thing. paternalism, i.e. my father made a bunch of choices for me when I was a kid that were way better than the choices I would have made, obviously. Uh, you know, one defers to one's elders up to a certain point because there is wisdom that you have not yet and physically are incapable of having inquired by that point. In terms of state paternalism, yes, actually, I am a Canadian and I am, a you know, uh, much more socialist than most Americans would be. I believe uh, in the single-payer health care system, which works fabulously well up here in Canada. Uh, I do not believe that all decisions should be offloaded on the individual because a lot of decision, a lot of big projects require collective work. For instance, uh, I do not have children. Whatever quest I might have for immortality is not through the standard Darwinian method of making sure my genes survive to the next generation. I pay taxes. Heck, I pay a lot of taxes. Should I exempt from paying taxes for schools? 
is never going to benefit me directly, never going to benefit my kids. Why should I be paying them? Well, obviously, I very happily support the school system because I support education as a principle. But if we allowed everybody to say, okay, all right, I will solely by charitable donation, if and only if I choose to make one, uh, put back into society some portion of the monies that I accrue. Clearly, that's not viable on a societal basis. So we have a paternalism in the sense that we elect a government that will make the choices of what hopefully they will do responsibly with the money we give them. So you end up believing in something like a very rugged individualism uh, mixed somehow with a relatively uh, robust paternalism at the same time. And I guess uh, it it lies in the details as to what lies in each category. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's no one answer to every question. These are complex issues. Atheism is a major theme in in many of your works. Uh, In your most recent book, I, I love this detail, the president is a closet atheist. The Republican president, as a matter of fact, is a closet atheist, even more so, uh, because it would be even more anathema uh, for a Republican to be outed as an atheist, uh, given the current political climate in the United States. I'm an atheist. I make no bones about it. Most people in the United States would rather have their daughter date a convicted criminal than date an atheist. And the electability of atheists is practically nil in most jurisdictions. Uh, So I am a big advocate. You mentioned the atheist who's trying to keep it a secret, the atheist president and triggers. In Wake, Watch, and Wonder, one of the things, the sentience that's emerged on the background of the World Wide Web engineers is an international coming out day for atheists. Because these days in the United States, I suspect there are at least as many closeted atheists as there's still closeted homosexuals. I brought it up because, um, I, uh, first of all, it's an interesting uh, theme in your novels and, and, and your thinking. Uh, but I also was going to say something I find interesting, which is we've, we've talked about your optimism, uh, and there's a certain faith that, that uh, is in your book and the benevolence of, of, uh, of consciousness, benevolence of the universe. Uh, that and uh, along with an interest in immortality are, are very classically uh, religious traits. Now, maybe you wouldn't describe them that way, but well, there, you, there are certain fascinations oh, of religion. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The thing is, when people look at atheists who don't understand atheists, they think atheists are devoid of the sense of wonder that goes with being a religionist. A religionist wonders, where did we come from? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? What happens after death? Does it all amount to anything? An atheist is not necessarily answering negatively to all those questions. Why are we here? I'm fascinated by that. What do you make uh, of the scientists and quasi-scientists, sometimes uh, science fiction writers, who who posit that uh, religion or or God is uh, possibly a feature of the brain? That we're oh, hardwired I, they're, to, they're, to they're good yeah. science. They're good scientists who believe that. I mean, there's a lot of good neuropsychology uh, and neuroscience that's been done in that area. And I mean, it's very straightforward. Uh, you know, we evolved on the African savanna. The African savanna had tall grasses. There were big cats that had vertical uh, stripings on their sides or camouflage. Uh, if you look and you think you've seen a big cat, which were big predators of us, you look in the tall grass and you think you see something there that isn't there nine times. Times out of 10, you're wrong because you've detected a pattern that actually isn't there. But the 10th time there was a, a big cat and you avoided it because of this overactive pattern recognition system that you've got, you're still alive. The flip side, the guy who only sees the big cat when it's there one times out of 10 is dead. Evolution selects 
for a desire to see patterns that aren't really there. That's the cornerstone uh, of religious belief. Well, maybe if you were, what you said earlier about uh, advances in drug chemistry is correct, we'll be able to cure ourselves then of, of God. I, in my novel, Hybrids, I have a human, Homo sapiens sapiens, and a Neanderthal. Neanderthals have no religion at all right. in the context of my universe of them, and we, of course, do. And a mother who is human and a father who is Neanderthal trying to decide, after they'd identified the genes responsible for religiosity in humans, whether or not they would have those genes passed on to their son or daughter, since the only way they could profitably uh, create a, a fertilized um, embryo was with genetic engineering to intervene. Uh, and they had that debate. And I won't tell you which decision they make, but it's a central debate in the novel. Terrific. Uh, just one last question. I'm, I'm curious, you know, you obviously think a lot about science and technology policy. I wonder if there's any areas in particular you, you follow regularly in the news and in other science. Well, I was extraordinarily flattered about 10 years ago to be invited by the Canadian Department of Justice to be the only writer uh, to sit on a panel they had of theologians and scientists and philosophers and lawmakers about what Canada's laws related to genetics and privacy should be. It's a particular interest of mine going right back to my 1997 novel, Frameshift. I'm very much interested in, uh, in governance and legislation that comes out of all of the things that are now possible thanks to the Human Genome Project. Rob, it's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Tim, an absolute joy. Thank you. I've been talking with science fiction writer Robert J. Sawyer. I'd like to thank our producer, Tori Brosh, our engineer, Chris Wade, and Andres Martinez of the New America Foundation. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. I'm Tim Wu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>